university professors spend a lot of time talking about a lot of things with each other at academic conferences and in academic journals. The problem with that is you don't go to academic conferences and you don't read academic journals, and I want to talk to you. Some of the most interesting thoughts in America about popular culture never get to be heard by people outside of the walls of academia, so I'm on a mission to bring those thoughts to you. Fabulous people, interesting ideas, brilliant conversations. I'm Dr. Christopher Bell, and this is a hard hat area. You're on with the Deconstruction Workers. Ladies and gentlemen, this week on the Deconstruction Workers, towards the end of this episode, we do engage in a slight bit of salty language. So please keep in mind you have been duly warned if you are listening with children or some such. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever it is you are. This is the Deconstruction Workers Podcast. I am Dr. Christopher Bell, and joining me today is Dr. Shannon Sindorf, one of our recurring guests here on the podcast. She teaches at both the University of Colorado Denver and the University of Colorado Boulder. Welcome back to the show, Shannon. Thank you, Chris. I'm so excited to be here. Nice. So this week, ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about a wide range of things. Both Shannon and I have been doing some research work in some areas that are tangentially connected, but a little bit disparate, and we're going to try to bring those two things together. Her part is coming from some classes that she taught this semester, and my part is coming from some research work that I am doing rhetorically. And so this will be hopefully a conversation that comes together the way that we're thinking it's going to in our heads and hopefully not a raging hot dumpster fire. So There's a lot in between of those two things, though. There is. There's a lot of places we could go with this. So... I'm going to kick it over to Shannon to get us started, and we'll see where we go. Okay. So the thing that I've been thinking about lately a lot is how we are moving from, as social media become more and more dominant in our media ecosystem, how we've been moving from the mass media gaze we can talk about what that is. The gaze is an orientation toward content. It's a way that we look at content, a way that we consume content. In a mass media era, the way we consumed content was the gaze, what we call the gaze. And we can talk about that. But in the social media era, we're moving more and more from the gaze to what we're calling the glance. And the glance is a different way of consuming content, a different way that we are oriented toward content, a different way that we see in this different information or media ecosystem. So the gaze is a mass media concept. So film, TV, music even, even though it's not visual, it still sort of falls into the the gaze kind of consumption category. But when you gaze at something, when you gaze at a media product, right, a TV show, a film, you're intentional about looking. So your orientation toward that object is you are sitting there intentionally looking. I came here to see this show. I came here to see this movie. And you consciously stare at this thing. You sit, it takes time, you contemplate it. When you gaze at something, it it implies that you are spending time looking at it, consuming it. It is unhurried 
you're not being hurried. You you could take your time thinking about it, right? And you can gaze at it unselfconsciously for as long as you want. It exists for you to consume it. That's the gaze. When we are invited with mass media, we're invited to sit and gaze at something. So the the, the concept of the gaze that I think many of us will know the only sort of version of the gaze there's lots of different kinds of gazes but the version of the gaze that we all often have heard is the male gaze so the male gaze is this idea coming from Laura Mulvey who's a psychoanalytic film scholar it's the idea that we are encouraged to see the film through the perspective of the heterosexual male the uh, uh, male gaze so the camera places the viewer in the perspective of a heterosexual man whose sight lingers on the curves of the woman's body. The woman becomes an object for us to consume, for us to objectify. She is a passive object for the active gaze of the viewer. Yes, but even the male gaze, women are encouraged to see movies and TV shows through the male gaze. So the women's gaze is actually the same as the male gaze in right. this concept. But that's just a version of the gaze. There are all kinds of gazes. Right. In my own work, repeatedly, I've used white gaze, Ooh, which is there we go. essentially the same thing where people of color are positioned not in ways that reveal their own true, real lived experiences, but ways in which white people see people of color. Yep. And therefore, it lacks a bit of truth. It lacks a bit of what we might call verisimilitude. Because as Laura Mulvey explains with male gaze, the only way we ever see is through male points of view. Because historically, only men have been allowed access to make media up until very recently. And therefore, all media, the camera has always been an extension of the gaze of men. Men look through cameras at women, therefore cameras look at women. So now even though women are behind the camera, the only way they've ever been taught how to look is as men look. Right. And the same thing happens with people of color. Right. So they are being positioned, they are being trained to see what's on the screen as if they were looking through the gaze of a white person. Exactly. So they're encouraged to see people of color through the way white people are encouraged to see them. Yeah, that's the same concept. Same concept. Yep. So we have the gaze. So the, in mass media, our orientation toward content was in a gaze form where we're just expected to sit there, think about it take our time. We're not hurried. And yes, we're encouraged to see it in a certain way. They're positioning the audience to see it in a certain way, but it implies time spent. Right. That positionality can't be discounted, by the way. We see things only in the way that the content creator allows us to see things. So the content creator places us in specific positions in order to see what they want us to see. And we do that through 
all kinds of things from camera angles to camera shot distance, camera movement, and so on. All of those things are designed for us as the audience member to see things only in the specific way that the person behind the camera wants us to see them. And that's not to say that we don't have a choice. We have agency to see things in a different way, but we're being guided to see them through that positionality. Well, we have limited choice. We have what we might call Morton's fork kind of choice. That is... If I tell you I have a stick in one hand and a brick in the other hand, and I say, which one do you want me to hit you with? I've given you a choice, but not really. That's the same way that the gaze operates. We can choose to look at different parts of the screen, or we can choose to look away, but we can't choose to see what's just to the left of the camera, for example. Right. Well, I was talking about agency. It's more our own life experiences and our own who we are as a person that's going to affect how we see what's on the screen. But example, we can't reconstruct a camera angle. Right. We bring our own subjectivities. We have lots of choice and very little control. Yes, that's good. So the gaze was the way that we consumed media in a mass media era. Well, what's changed is the rise of the attention economy, a system where people's attention comes to have economic value. And this is the internet social media age, right? So us paying attention to something, that's currency. It has economic value. So now information is plentiful. Information is everywhere, but we can only spend so much attention to it. We can no longer be encouraged to leisurely gaze at something. So our orientation toward content is changing from a gaze to a glance. So we are encouraged to have fleeting experience of an object. So think of something like Instagram, where you're not gazing so much. You're not sitting there spending time unhurried taking in this image. You're glancing at it and you're scrolling past. Right. Although I will say The attention economy is not new. We've had attention economy as long as we've had celebrity culture, which is relatively recent in our history. There's always been heroes and there's always been the great man in society or whatever, but actual celebrity culture, that is the idea of being famous because you're famous, is relatively new in our society. And that attention economy has everything to do with that. Because if I am a celebrity, if I am pick someone, if I'm Denzel Washington, if I'm Natalie Portman, if I'm Scarlett Johansson, part of my selling of product is I'm in this movie and you want to go see this movie. But part of selling that product is also I'm selling Scarlett Johansson as Scarlett Johansson. So I go on talk shows, and when I go on talk shows, I'm not necessarily just selling the movie, I'm also selling myself, because I understand there are literally thousands of celebrities you could be paying attention to, and I don't want you to. I want you to pay attention to me. And the internet has just expanded that into, because everyone who has an internet connection is now a content creator, now everyone is competing in that marketplace of attention economy. Well, I'm not sure we're talking about the same thing when we use the term attention economy. Because you're talking about how a celebrity is a draw for somebody's attention. And I'm talking about the attention economy being, I'm focusing on the economy aspect of it more than just the attention. Like our attention actually becomes currency. No, so am I. 
I'm saying that in a very Pierre Bourdieu sort of sense, where we talk about how there's financial capital and there's cultural capital and there's social capital, I'm saying there's actually room in contemporary society to add another form of capital, another form of exchange, and that exchange is the very attention that we have because we have finite resources. Attention is a finite resource. I can only pay attention to so many things. So when I give that attention to you, that's transactional. I expect something in return. Whether that attention is paid to a celebrity or to a piece of media, every time I play a video game, I'm not watching television, I'm not on Facebook, and so on and so forth. It's all attention in terms of the actual transaction. Right. But I think what's different about social media is that our attention, our glances have actually come to equal financial capital. Well, sure. But they they do in celebrity culture as well. Well, yes, they do, but not in quite a direct transactional sense as they do on social media. The way Instagram or Facebook has actually come to monetize, the more likes you get, the more visibility you get, the more followers you get, the more valuable you are. Which extends to things like YouTube as well, which is which is very much a DIY celebrity venture. It is. I am actively involved in the creation of celebrity. Twitter is actually a better bridge between what you're talking about and what I'm talking about. How so? Because Twitter celebrities are a real thing. People who are famous and who generate revenue simply by engaging in social media or what we now refer to as the social media influencer, which is one of the most terrible terms we have come up with as a society in modernity. But the Twitter influencer is a real thing that monetizes the attention economy. Is that not true of YouTube, though? Well, sure. Absolutely. A Twitter influencer? What's a Twitter influencer look like? There are people who follow Twitter accounts simply because of who the personality is that's generating the content. And then that person's then in a position to push products. That person's in a position to retweet or to link to things that then monetize the value. It works in the exact same way as it does on YouTube or Instagram or any of these other social media platforms. But I think on Twitter, I see less of a connection between financial compensation and influencing than I do on, say, Instagram or YouTube. I mean, it's very direct. I mean, they're on Instagram and YouTube, they are advertising on Twitter. And maybe I'm just not familiar with these accounts. But there's, it seems that on YouTube, especially people actually get paid for the amount of views they get. So the connection between compensation and attention is very direct on YouTube, Instagram, a little less so just because you know, you have to have a relationship with an advertiser in order to get paid. But I'm having trouble drawing the connection with Twitter. Well, yeah, it's because it operates slightly differently in that Twitter influencers gain their revenue by linking out to things that then pay them directly. So if I'm a Twitter brand influencer, for example, and I want to influence you, for example, to go to a particular website. I've made a deal with that website that every link 
click I get from my Twitter account pays me five cents or whatever. Okay, so right? it's basically the same setup. It's, it's basically it's just, the same it's just setup. Because the platform is set up differently, exactly. or those arrangements are going to be set up a little differently. Exactly. Okay. But there are people who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars as Twitter influencers, as people who can funnel content. Right. And it happens in the exact same way. It is a little more direct on something like Instagram, because when you come to my Instagram feed, someone's paying me for that. As opposed to when you come to my Twitter, I have links. And every time you click my link, that's how I'm getting paid. And that's just because the platform is set up differently. Because the platform's set up differently. Right. Take a celebrity like Justin Timberlake, for example. Okay. Justin Timberlake has 69.7% million Twitter followers. So in many ways, he is not just a musician. He is also a social media influencer. Because if Justin Timberlake puts a link out to something on his Twitter feed, even if a tenth, even if 1% of his followers click that link, that's generating revenue in the hundreds, if not thousands of dollars. Right. I mean, when we talk about an influencer, I mean, there's a certain of intentionality. Right. When we say influencer, we're talking about people who get people, paid people to who wield only that influence. Do this. Let's go to the current currency in social media influencers. Let's talk about Lori Laughlin's daughter. <laughs> okay. Olivia Jade or something? Something in that neighborhood. Yeah. She is a model. She is a admittedly poor student who who her mom is probably going to go to jail for getting her into USC when she didn't even want when she didn't even want to go in the first place right she's got almost 2 million subscribers on her YouTube channel she's got a little over a million Instagram followers she has brand deals so every time someone goes to her YouTube, she is gaining money from companies like Amazon and Dolce & Gabbana and Unilever because she advertises their shampoos and all this kind of Marc Jacobs and all these companies pay her in return, not for her service, but in return for her ability to collect gaze or in your case, glance. Glance, right. Her ability to collect attention, she can then translate into finance. So we have, if I may, we're moving into something else that I actually really want to talk about and that I have really been thinking about a lot lately. Here's the thing. When we take a straight up Instagram influencer, somebody like her, this is honestly more than social media. This actually resembles mass media because people aren't interacting with her so much. I mean, they might be, but that's not really the point. She is basically talking about the attention economy and how it's not a new thing. This is not even social media. This is mass media. She is basically broadcasting. She's basically just advertising. She is an ad. She is a personality and she has her channel and she has content interspersed with ads. That's basically what mass media is on on that kind of advertising model. I'm seeing social media move more and more 
in turn more and more into mass media and less into social media. Social media kind of implies interactivity. It implies community. Instagram used to be a place for community. It used to be a place where we'd like take pictures of our lunch and send it to our friends and we'd talk to each other. Now it's basically, you know, we have these people who have millions of followers. They're basically mass media. Oh, absolutely. And they're trading in, and in her case, really specifically, they're trading in on a concept that we've been talking about in mass media since the 1950s, and that's the concept of parasociality. Oh, yeah. That is... Absolutely. The parasocial relationship, the way parasocial relationships work is we treat people in media as though we know them in real life. So pick a celebrity that you like. And it used to be specifically what they used to talk about it in terms of talk shows. Yep, right? because they're looking at you, they're talking to you, Carson or, talking to the camera, exactly. but you feel like he's talking to you. Exactly. So I like, I don't know, Seth Meyers. Seth Meyers comes to my house every day. And he hangs out with me for a couple of hours and he talks to other people who I enjoy and he says the kind of stuff that I like and I kind of think he's funny and I get his jokes. And after a while, I begin to develop a relationship with that celebrity. Right. It's Special. intimate. You, he, it is an intimate thing. You are inviting him into your living room and he is looking at you and talking right. to you. Or in some cases into your bedroom even, which is an even more intimate right. space, right? Right. You know, those of us who have televisions in our bedrooms and you watch a little bit of television before you go to bed as you're winding down the day and you invite this other person into your most intimate spaces. And in the talk show, as you pointed out, the talk show format actually works better because they are talking directly at the camera. They are talking to you specifically, as opposed to, you know, a fictional text where the characters are talking to each other and they don't break that fourth wall. There is no fourth wall in the talk show format, which has extended into all kinds of stuff, the cooking show or the DIY show, or even in some cases, the mockumentary where they're talking directly into the camera. So you begin to develop this relationship in which I look forward to next episode tomorrow. And if it's not there, if for some reason it's canceled or it's on hiatus or whatever, or there's a guest host or something like that, I feel anxious. What happened to my friend and where did they go and why aren't they here? And I wonder what they're doing in the same ways that you would if you showed up to work tomorrow and someone you worked with wasn't there. You would think, where are they? And what's going on with them and whatever. But the parasocial part of it is, it is literally parasocial. That is, it doesn't exist. It exists adjacent to a social relationship, but it's not the same thing as an actual social relationship. Right, it's one-sided. It's one-sided. And the YouTube celebrity or the Instagram celebrity or the Twitter celebrity is one step in between a parasocial and a social relationship because you might interact with the person. Maybe. No. So the, the on screen, a parasocial element is still, it's really the same. Right. They're talking to the camera, talking to you, you, but you're inviting them into your space and you feel like they're talking to you. But right. There is 
that interactivity element is what makes it. And another thing that's different is that YouTubers and really all social media influencers or personalities, they actually invite that parasocial relationship in a way that I don't think talk show hosts, for example, mass media personalities necessarily did. And I might be wrong about this, but they, they definitely invite it. If you watch, like there's this beauty influencer, I actually used an example of this in my class. Her name, I'm not going to say her name, but she does these get ready with me in the morning right. videos where she's, you know, in no makeup and you, she watches, washes her face and she moisturizes her skin and then she gets in the bath. I mean, the most intimate of things, brushing my teeth and of course showing products all along the way. Right. But then I'm getting into the bath, you know, so you think, oh, she's naked. She is inviting. She is trying to activate that parasocial relationship. Absolutely. One of my former students, one of my best graduate students from the past wrote her master's thesis on Hannah Hart. Hannah Hart is a YouTube celebrity, quote unquote, who hosts a show called My Drunk Kitchen, where she just gets drunk and cooks things and then talks to the camera. And it, huh. and it took off and it went viral and people started really enjoying it. And then she started getting product deals where she would integrate product deals, mostly through alcohol companies or through food <laughs> companies, into her show, which is as mass media broadcasty as I can imagine. Yep. It is completely shoved outside of the social media influencer track into just legitimate regular mass media. The only difference being you could type in the comment section and maybe the next time around they would interact with you or Maybe even if they don't, you imagine that right. they do. Or more so in the immediate where I'm a content creator and you type a YouTube comment to me and I comment on your comment. So there's the community aspect right, right there. Which is the same thing that happens on Twitter as well with these influencers. I am someone who types on Twitter and now there's a chance that the person I have typed to or at more specifically on Twitter the person I have typed at may respond to me in real time, which is the piece that social media brings to the table that we haven't really had before in our culture. You could write a fan letter, for example, and that fan letter may never get answered or it might get answered by a form letter or it might be answered, quote unquote, by someone who was probably an intern and had nothing to do with the actual celebrity. Whereas now you can get responses from influencers in real time. And on Twitter or Instagram, celebrities have so many backstage authenticity moments, right. you know, where you can see them behind the scenes, unfiltered, no gatekeepers, no publicists. This is just them talking to you and, oh, they're a regular person just like you. Just like you. Chris, I like the way that you are describing parasocial relationships. I think that so many times, especially in the original parasocial relationships literature, it sounds like the parasocial relationship sounds like a personality disorder. They make it sound like something pathological and demented, like the people who think they're actually literally in a romantic relationship with a celebrity. Right. We need to make clear that's not what this is. No. Everybody participates in parasocial relationships to some extent. It's well, totally normal. It's absolutely normal. And keep in mind when Donald Horton and Richard Wall 
first wrote about parasocial interaction, it was 1956. They were both psychiatrists and they did treat it like a mental disorder. But keep in mind, it was 1956 and we were still in, I wouldn't say we were in television infancy, but we were certainly in television toddlerhood. We had not had television that long. Right. So people weren't used to it. It hadn't been normalized into life or at least not for for some people it had, but not for everybody. So we were still in that. We're trying to grapple with this new media kind of thing. New media are always going to either save the world or destroy the world. Most likely destroy. The history of civilization is the history of the advancement of media technologies and the history of the advancement of media technologies is the history of abject panic right? over and over <laughs> or, and over again. Or complete utopian excitement, you know, transformative excitement. This is going to save everything. Exactly. Either one of those two things. Not a other. whole lot of in between until 30 years later. Right. Very little. Oh, this is cool. And then moving on with your day. Very, Which is what very really little happens. of that. Right. <sighs> yeah. So, okay. Hold that thought. We're going to come back in two and two and we'll catch back up to the conversation after the break. Did you know that the Deconstruction Workers podcast has a Patreon page? Well, we do. We have a Patreon page. It is www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW. You can donate as little as $1 a month towards keeping the lights on, and we would really appreciate your support. So click on over to www.patreon.com slash podcast DCW and pledge your support if you enjoy what you're hearing. Now, back to the show. And we're back. So we were talking about parasocial interaction and the attention economy and the way in which we've moved from the gaze, which was a very time-intensive process, to the glance, which social media has protracted into, you need to grab my attention right this second or else I'm going to go do something else. There's a lot of ways that media landscape oriented around the glance is different. One thing that's interesting is that it gives us some more power. In the mass media gaze, you sit you ponder, you stare at the screen for, you know, either a half hour or two hours or whatever it is. You are encouraged to see this thing the way they want you to see it with the lighting, with the editing cuts and all that stuff and the camera angles. And then you walk away and yeah, you have choice in terms of how to interpret it, but you have watched a very curated product. The glance, we have a lot more control because we are sitting here and usually it's in our hands right in our on our phones and we're flipping through images we can choose to linger on one or we can keep flipping one key thing though where's the end of instagram it doesn't ever end whereas a tv show a movie it ends this thing it never ends and so it kind of always leaves us wanting more but also we have we can now it is so easy for us to upload our own media we can, I can take a picture, I can post it on Instagram. There, I have contributed something and maybe someone else will glance at it. You know, I mean, in that fleeting sort of connection. Another thing is this ephemerality, this move toward Instagram stories and Facebook stories that disappear or after a certain time. Or Snapchat, where it's you write like four seconds or whatever it is. That ephemerality, that changes our orientation toward images too. And the reason it's so important, our screens tend to define 
define a culture, at least, you know, people like you and me, like we take culture very seriously. The kind of screens that we watch tend to define our cultures. We spend so much time looking at them. So the way that we watch them tends to sort of define us, which is why I think it's important that our social media are moving in a lot of ways more toward broadcast media than social media because social media is community oriented, it's interactive. The fact that we're moving more toward broadcast media where we have a more passive relationship with these things, to me that's important. There's also rhetorical consequence of that. And what I mean by that is because of the glance and because of our screens and the fact that we have all the information in human existence in our pockets at all times, the rhetorical consequence of that is our attention spans have gotten so short that now what passes for argument is no longer argument, but meme and gif culture. I'm and so I'm glad not gonna you're going to I'm not going to say GIF. I'm not one of those people. I won't do it. I won't do it either. I don't care what's right. I, I won't don't say GIF. Nope. Thank you. This meme and GIF culture is huge right now where someone says a thing and instead of me doing anything, giving them an amen, arguing against their point, whatever, all I have to do is either post this picture or post this short video clip, and that counts as my argument, particularly if it is something common and salient that we're used to seeing. I don't have to actually make fun of you, I can just post that SpongeBob face, and it means that I'm making fun of you, and I don't have to actually take the time to do that. I don't have to say, yes, I agree with you. I just have to post, you know, Christina Aguilera saying hallelujah, and you get what I'm saying. So are you saying that GIF meme culture is dumbing down our discourse? I'm not saying it's dumbing down our discourse so much as I'm saying it is fundamentally changing the nature of argument as a concept. Okay. Argument, sure. Yeah. I can definitely see that when it comes to argument. Like, instead of actually having to craft a logical argument and engage with you, I'm just going to post this picture and then that there you go. There you here's go. My, my here's argument. my whole feelings in this three-second gif of someone dancing or something. Exactly. There's a version of this that it's not the argument that you're making, but it's an argument that I've heard made. And the fact that we communicate in memes, we communicate in gifs where we take a little piece of popular culture and, and remix it in some way or take a snapshot of it that somebody else has remixed and use that to present a feeling, an emotion, a point. I have heard it said that that is dumbing down culture, that we are now communicating in these tiny little snippets, these little pieces of digital content units that we circulate, that we've seen before, and the reason they mean something is because we've seen them before, that that's dumbing us down. And I have a counterpoint to that. I do too. My counterpoint is a gif that says, that's stupid. Okay. <laughs> why is it stupid? I want to know if your argument for why it's stupid is the same as mine. I don't believe that it's dumbing down culture at all. I think it's the natural, logical extension of who we are as a people. I have argued on this show and in my own academic work multiple times that we are 
particularly in the United States, but most of Western culture in general, we are cultures in which image is ideologically central. Mm. We are taught to think in pictures as a culture. So Would you be now or before? I mean, for the last probably 200 years, we have been taught to think in pictures. Okay, 200 years, I'm bringing my Neil Postman on here, and he would definitely not agree with you. The difference between print culture, where this is media ecology sort of stuff, and print culture, we're trained to read silently and think logically about what's on the page. But then it was actually not until television became so common that we started thinking in images. I would argue that the second we began using printing presses to print novels instead of biblical tracts and government treatises, the second we started using our printing presses to print fiction, that is the moment in which image began to supplant the written word. But novels are texts. Yes, but you translate those texts into pictures in your head. When you read a novel, you don't read words on the page and then construct a narrative in your head in terms of image sequencing, you take that novel and you translate it into images. That is why even before we had television or film or even photography at all, people still gave you visual descriptions of things in textual form with the understanding you would take that visual imagery and translate it in your head into an image. You would take the textual word and you would translate it into image in your head. And that predates mass media in terms of television and film. It predates photography. We didn't need those things in order for image, for the idea of thinking in pictures to begin to take root as the ideological center of the way we think about text. This is very interesting, and I need to do some more thinking on this. This is a, this is super interesting. That we were trained to, we started being trained to think in images when we stopped. But the Bible is told like a story. Well, sure. I mean, and you it, could say it, the Bible is meant to put images in our heads. I, I think that's an argument that could be made. It's not an argument well, I would I'm, make. Well, I'm making it. Well, nice. <laughs> <laughs> then I don't disagree with you. As long as we have had words that describe, we are then encouraged to take those words and translate them into pictures in our head. Okay. So the Bible was written the way it's written, kind of like literature of the time. It's meant to give people who are reading it images. So then it was actually only a brief time where we, we were being sort of trained out of that and trained to think logically words on a page. And that would have come with the Enlightenment. Yes, that's a an absolutely salient argument to make here. So that was when dogma was purged from our thought. Right. Or at least that was the point. It's the problem with Rene Descartes and logical positivism. That was the culprit. Right. So, yeah, everything was supposed to be reducted to numbers. Right. Exactly. So, image. Chris, we're writing a book right now, you see. so <laughs> We are live writing a treatise as we speak. 
Yes, we are. I don't know who read it, but I would. <laughs> so then for the brief time where, say, the printing press, when non-religious but non-fiction <laughs> works dominated what came off of those printing presses, this is the short amount of time when we weren't supposed to be thinking in pictures. Yes. The pictures... This is really interesting. Okay, I'm lost in this new book that we're writing. Where were we? (laughs) We were talking about the ideological centrality of the image and how we're taught to think in pictures, which then becomes, by logical extension, we can then argue in pictures. Pictures become a logical shorthand for us culturally, which takes an incredible amount of cognitive resource in order to process. It's not dumbing us down at all. It actually takes more cognitive resources to interpret that as opposed to if I tell you exactly where my argument is supposed to be going. Okay, I don't know about that, that arguments, a fully formed argument does require text. I think it does. I don't think that we can reduce a logical argument to emojis and to memes. I don't think so either, but I do think Goya may disagree with you. Goya. Francisco de Goya may disagree with you in that a single image can make a complete argument. Well, and I mean, that's what art is, right? I mean, that's... So, yes, art is supposed to be the exception to this rule. I am not Goya. (laughs) I'm a lot of things, but I'm not Goya. Right. And... I can't communicate in images uh, anywhere near that level. My argument about when people talk about how the fact that we're communicating in memes and GIFs is dumbing us down, my argument against that is the OA. It is Stranger Things. It is Mr. Robot. It is Game of Thrones. It is all of these super complex narratives that we sit and we focus on and we spend hours deconstructing and we spend hours putting all these different moving pieces that we put together and they have multiple interpretations and we could talk about them all day long. Our focus and our ability to handle complex narratives and complex storytelling Television has never been better. Oh, yeah. Right? And so that is my argument against memes and GIFs turning us into idiocracy. It's that our capacity is so obvious that we don't just communicate that way. It's almost like we've split the way that we think and communicate into, on one hand, keyboard cat, and on the other hand, the OA. Well, and this is my argument about cognitive resources, right? Because when I post the a GIF of Arya Stark, for example, part of my argument is that image itself, but my argument may quite possibly be eight years of connectivity within a narrative that you would have to have cognitive access to in order to even understand my argument in the first place. Right. Which I will not because I don't watch because Game of Thrones. Watch Game of Thrones. But that's the point. This brings me to a whole other thing that I wanted to talk about, which is this is the second time this season that you have said, I don't watch Game of Thrones. But I don't do it the way that I'm not sitting here trying to make myself no. sound better. Than- I know. And this is the point that I'm trying to make, which is 
you and I have talked about this off air. Yeah. Part of this social media meme gif culture is this thing that now has taken root in our society that couples that meme gif culture with our natural tendencies in terms of how fandom operates, which we've talked about on this show about a million times. (laughs) And now it has manifested in these two concepts that people are beginning to call performative disinterest and performative distaste. Yeah. That is people who are against what you like to your face and believe that that brings them some sort of cultural currency. Right. Don't yuck my yum, dude. Right. If I so, like it. So I say step off. Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones, you because you're my friend and a reasonable rational human being says I don't watch Game of Thrones. And I say, that's cool. You don't have to. No, I'm saying it just to let you know. I'm not a part of this conversation. I don't know what you're talking about. It's location. (laughs) It's not judgment. No, not at all. That's not how people are doing it now. Now people are doing it as in, you enjoy a thing. You are in the active process of enjoying that thing. And I am going to say how much I hate that thing, oftentimes without ever having actually experienced it, to your face because I believe that in some way that brings me some sort of capital or currency. It's the people who on Super Bowl Sunday have to go on Facebook and make it clear they're not watching the Super Bowl, to which I say, nobody cares. You know who cares that you're not watching the Super Bowl? Not the 38 million people who are watching the Super Bowl. Right. It's, it's, they're jealous, frankly, there, there's this thing going on that they don't understand that they don't care about and they don't know about. They have FOMO, their fear of missing out and they know they're missing out on something. And so they have to make themselves feel superior to you by yucking your yum. That's part of it. But part of it is also this sort of feeling as though the things that I like are a reflection of my own taste values And my taste values are clearly superior to your taste values because they're mine. I am always team good guys and you are always team bad guys unless you like what I like. And if you like what I like, you can be team good guys. But if I don't like what you like, that means I'm better. Right. So they're using differences in taste, like their different taste for your versus your different taste to other you. Yes. Right. It's not that I don't like Game of Thrones. It's that you do like Game of Thrones and that clearly makes you a terrible person. Or at least it makes you a someone who has poor taste. Or yeah, I'm going to perform that you that I think you're a terrible person and that you are less than somehow. Right. Because the the psychological component is that it makes me feel better about myself. Right. This is different than I don't watch a thing, which is your case. Right. Or in the case of Natalie Shepard, who is one of our other deconstruction workers, she has watched several episodes and just decided she didn't like it. And so she just doesn't watch it. Yeah, that's what I did. Which is a completely different thing altogether. You watch a thing and you don't like it. No one's saying you have to like it. 
there's a difference between not liking things and performative disgust or performative dis- disinterest. I acknowledge it's probably a, I'm sure it's a fantastic show. It's just that one that I am not fluent in. It's also a hugely problematic show in lots of ways. Is it? There's lots of rape and incest and people's heads getting cut off. And there's lots of terrible things in the show that might put someone off of it. And I totally get that. Right. It all boils down to what in the internet meme community we refer to as Wheaton's Law. Wheaton's Law comes from Will Wheaton, who played Wesley Crusher on Star Trek. Next Generation. Next Generation. Wheaton's Law is essentially, don't be a dick. Right. (laughs) Right. I like that. There's this whole song. It's one of my very favorite internet memes. It's okay. To not like things, it's okay, but don't be a dick about it. It's okay to not like things. Don't be a dick about the things you don't like. That's Wheaton's Law. It's okay to not like things. Don't be a dick about it. Don't be a dick about the things you don't like. I think that's a really good law to follow. Okay, 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 but... Here's my question. Are there pieces of culture that are so bad or problematic that we do get to judge people for liking them? Oh, sure. I mean, there are things that are truly objectionable. There are things that are truly objectionable. And I use the same standard that I use with my students when we talk about how do we interpret text. What would a likely viewer say about the text? A likely viewer. So Game of Thrones is objectionable to some people, but clearly a likely viewer would find things in it that are enjoyable. Even if you don't like that kind of thing, there's stuff in it that people like. There are things that are truly objectionable that the average likely viewer would find objectionable, and it's okay to judge that. Uh, it's okay can to you judge. give me an example? Because I'm I'm not sure I can... It's okay to judge snuff pornography. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's pretty bad. It's okay to judge cruelty. Right. Okay. There are lots of cruelty videos. Even on YouTube, there's cruelty videos. Ugh, it's okay YouTube to is a... judge hell. people who enjoy that. Okay. Okay. All right. Uh, so that's where there's... I just wanted to know where we're setting the bar. I agree with that bar. It's like obscenity. There's no definition of it, but you know it when you see it. Okay. There is stuff in our culture that the average reasonable person would go, yeah, that's not okay. Okay. And I think it's okay for us to judge those things. Someone who likes Saved by the Bell is not one of those things. Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know? For those of us who grew up watching it, I think. (laughs) Exactly. I would be very uncomfortable if that bar was higher (laughs) than Saved by the Bell. Exactly. There are plenty of us who grew up watching lots of trash. I am currently, I talked about this on the last episode, I'm currently subjecting my daughter to the entire run of My Two Dads. Right. Why? Because I love that show. And see, I watched it and I don't remember it see? at all. And there are some people who might be super judgy and say, oh, that's trash. That's just 80s sitcom nonsense, right? That's well, maybe, but discussed. it had something It made you who you are. Exactly. It's okay to not like things. Right. Leave other people alone to like the things that they like. It's okay for people to like stuff. Yeah. It's okay for people to like stuff. 
Yeah, I like a lot of stuff that was not exactly considered highbrow. <laughs> right. Exactly. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna name them. Right. I now. like a lot of stuff that other people would consider highbrow. That I am totally okay with other people not liking. I still watch Poldark on Masterpiece Theater, um, <laughs> which anyone who watches that show and doesn't like it, I get it. <laughs> Trust me, <laughs> I get why you might not like it. That's funny. So I think this brings us to our normal place, which is at the end of the day, meme culture, internet culture, the gaze, the glance. So what? Well, I would say a couple things. One, the way that we orient ourselves toward content, the way that we consume content matters for how that content circulates in culture, but also how we experience it and how society is kind of arranged around it. Another thing is don't judge how somebody else, (laughs) the content somebody else consumes. I don't know. What are yours? I would say at the end of the day, we are a culture that is continually advancing. What direction we're continually advancing is something we can talk about. But we are evolving both in terms of the way in which we generate and utilize capital, the kinds of capital we generate and utilize, and also in the way that we interact rhetorically with each other. And GIF and meme culture, performative disgust, Wheaton's Law, all of these things are a part of that transition into a new form of society, whatever that new form of society is going to look like. Also, just because we now communicate so often in GIFs and memes doesn't mean we are becoming stupid. No. It also doesn't necessarily mean we're any smarter either. No. It's just another way to communicate and our civilization invents new ways to communicate all the time. Right. We're not dumb no. because we still have the OA. No, I don't know. <laughs> we're not dumb because if you can keep track of everything going on on Game of Thrones, you're smarter than not. Exactly. So, ladies and gentlemen, for Dr. Shannon Sindorf, I am Dr. Christopher Bell. We have been the Deconstruction Workers. Thanks for joining me again, Shannon. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. This is fun. The Deconstruction Workers podcast is produced and directed by me, Dr. Christopher Bell. If you like what you hear, the best thing you can do for the podcast is give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcast fix. Feel free to check out thedeconstructionworkers.com, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thedeconstructionworkers, or Twitter at podcastdcw. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can donate as little as a dollar a month towards keeping the lights on at www.patreon.com slash podcastdcw. The Deconstruction Workers is recorded on the beautiful University of Colorado, Colorado Springs campus, 6,033 feet above sea level. The theme song for The Deconstruction Workers was composed by Raphael Crux. As always, please support alternative scholarship and public engagement. The Deconstruction Workers is copyright 2018, all rights reserved.